This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight, okay, the tonight's sponsored for Le'ilu Nishmat, Freda Bat Yehuda Arye and Moshe Yehuda Ben Yitzhak Tzvi HaKohen. Uh, tonight we're also learning for Le'fuash Nemat to Yechazka Ben Tzila. And also there is a, uh, if I remember correctly, there's a 24-year-old man who was... Uh, Lost, I guess you could call it, in Canada uh, for quite a few days, uh, a Jewish person. And so hopefully, B'zal Hashem, this uh, classical, that uh, they should be able to find him uh, and everything should be okay. The person's name is Shimon Alexander Ben Chaya Riva. Okay, let us begin. So Pesach is coming up. Uh, Pesach, oof. You know what the, the crazy is? You have like Purim and everybody gets so involved. And then like within like a, such a short period of time, already oh, right, Pesach is coming up. The truth is it's not really as bad as when you have, you know, you have Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and then you have like few days until Sukkot is coming up. So like at least we have like a month to like prepare for this. But one of the things that, you know, coming, you know, after, after Purim I was thinking about it, I was like, you know, what am I going to speak about? Like we have about a month over now. Should I go continue my, my, you know, my current series, which is on, uh, what are we speaking about in this class? Thursdays we're talking about uh, 13 principles of faith, right? So should I continue about that? Should I talk about, and I decided that I want to start a, a mini series. We'll see how far we get to it on the 10 Makot, the 10 plagues. We did. We spoke about it. So last year, two years ago, I think it was two years ago. Almost 3,000. <clears throat> Some time ago, a while ago, we spoke about the hidden story of Pesach, which I strongly recommend uh, people, uh, you know, going through. I did it in three classes. I really ran through it. So what I want to do this series is go through only the templates. I mean, a little bit of an introduction. The 10 plagues and really go into details of it and try to understand it. There's a lot of beauty in it. We will repeat some things that we mentioned, you know, previously because it's the same story. We're not saying a different story, but we're going to bring it in a, in a completely different, uh, a different light. The, we, we also have to understand this. There's a tremendous amount of emphasis that it, in Judaism on the Exodus. We mention it every single day. Does anybody know where we mention every single day? Shema. Shema. Very good. Okay, for the one religious person here. <laughs> um, we mention it. Everybody thought about it. Um, so we mention, every, we mention Exodus all the time. The Exodus is a tremendous amount of importance in Judaism. Do we have to understand it. Also, when you're coming to the Sedel, when you're coming to the, you know, to the, to the Passover nights, or the first two nights, if you're an American, then, or anywhere outside Israel, actually, for that matter, you, you know, say over the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. You have to actually speak about it. Now, what do people speak about? The real emphasis should really be on the children. It really should be on the children. So, you have people, there's like categories that you put it. So, you have like some people that don't keep Pesach. We're not speaking about them. And then you have the people like, like slightly above it that they just keep it. Then you have the people like slightly above that that they actually keep the Passover Seder and they actually read the Haggadah. But how do they read the Haggadah? They don't understand Hebrew, they don't read Hebrew, but somehow they are able to go through the entire thing in like 13 minutes. And they're going through the entire thing, just like Hamet, and under 18 minutes they finish the entire thing. They just go through the entire, the entire setup. Then you have some people that they go through the story of Pesach, and they go and they say a little bit of Dval Torah on it, that's very nice, that's even better. Then you have people that they go through like crazy Dval Torah, you know, like, which, don't, don't get me wrong, I love these things, right? They'll go through the numerical values and the gematrias and say, oh, you know what it says over here? And, and they'll go through like an hour and a half on the deep Kabbalistic mystical concepts on the setup. Meanwhile, their four children are sitting over there like, what's going on over here? Like, uh, numbers? I didn't know Passover had anything to do with numbers. They have no clue what's going on. The, the goal 
of Pesach is really for the children. It's really for the children. So what I want to try to do, and we're going to speak a little bit about the numbers, we're going to speak about gematches, we're going to speak about all those fun stuff, but the real goal is to get to understanding what you need to tell your children. And if you don't have children, it's even yourself. The actual story of, uh, the actual mitzvah of Sipu Yitzit Mitzayim is actually saying over the story of Yitzhak Mitzayim. And unfortunately, many people don't know this. Uh, the... When I, I'll tell you how I do it. So let's say if I'm, let's say by my in-laws, my parents, whatever, wherever I am, people usually turn to me to, you know, like, do you have a Dvar Torah? You know, like, and they're like, well, in fact, I do. <laughs> you know, like, are you ready for, you know? But, you know, that's what I used to do when I was single. <laughs> um, uh, but now, Baruch Hashem, that I have kids, what I usually do is, like, let everybody speak. When the meal is happening, this is I'll tell you what I do. When the meal is happening, this is, I deal with the children. And if let's say about my in-laws or my parents, so there's a bunch of kids there. They all gather around me. It's, a, it's already a, like a tradition. I have a specific, I wish I would have brought it. It's with my Pesach stuff. I have a, it's a, it's a book with pictures. And it, what I love about it is that the pictures, maybe I'll bring it. If I have it one week, I, if I have to find it, if I'm able to find it, I'll bring it in. It's all, it's the pictures of the ten plagues, but it gives you with, with midrashic details, with, with a lot of details that you don't never... If you just look at it and you never understood the real story of Yitzhak time, you'd be like, okay, this guy did a lot of extra details. But what I found is so fascinating is that they put so many details in it that only somebody who knows all the midrashim, all the Kabbalistic behind it, they're able to understand it. So what I do is I usually show it to the kids and I go through while everybody's eating, me and the kids, we have our own situation going on over there and I go through the plagues. So the first, first night I do, let's say, the first few and the next night I do the, you know, the final, you break it up. But when you go to somebody who is never, you know, like, okay, so you know the templates, blood, oh, okay, everybody had blood, frogs, it was crazy, it was frogs everywhere. Like, what do you know about it? Like, you have to be, expand about it, you have to go and, and speak about it. So, the goal for this uh, mini-series, we'll see how far we get, I don't know if we'll get to all, all ten, but as far as we'll be able to get is to try to understand a better understanding on these ten plagues, on what each maka really represents, and really a, a more of a of a deeper, clearer understanding that when you go to your seder, you'll be able to go and explain it. And you have to realize, when you're going to your seder and you want to say something over, you don't have to say something crazy. It's just expanding upon the story. And that's why... I was very happy, Baruch Hashem, that I was able to uh, to do the hidden story of Pesach, which I did it blah, 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 years ago. Uh, I would strongly recommend... To the, I, I was reviewing it also. Like I, I have to review the story every every year also. Like it's good to review it. It's good to go over it and realize what we're dealing with. When you understand the story, you're coming in it with a different with a different idea. It, that's like in everything in life. When you're going into something, the more you understand something, the more you can appreciate it. If you're like, okay, well, three thousand, you know, three hundred years ago, we were slaves in Egypt and we got out. Slow round of applause for God. All right, God. You, my man. Like, that doesn't do anything for you. But the more you understand the details, the more you're able to do it. You more be able to, to relate to it. We know the ten plagues came. Am I boring you? I'm sorry. No, no, okay, okay, man. <laughs> okay, so um, you should know that there's only certain people that I would feel comfortable in making that type of comment to. I know, so, but no! <laughs> okay, good. So, um, Paro goes... Paro goes... It's okay, it's fine. <laughs> Paro, it's contagious. It's fine. Paro goes, put it this way, have you ever gone skydiving? Please say no. You have not. Have you ever been very tired? Have you yawned before you've gone skydiving? Not that I'm comparing learning about the plagues and skydiving. In a sense, I am. But, like, you know, like, when you're excited about something, you can't be tired. If you're, 
if you're not excited about something, so you could be tired. So what I'm trying to tell you is get excited, because it's getting good in here. It's going to get crazy. Okay, there we go. So now, Paro. Right? We're speaking about Paro. Paro. You know what I'm thinking about right now? I'm like, not skydiving. I'm like, like, am I so crazy? Like, which other speaker speaks like that? Like, what? <laughs> like I got to dial it down a little bit, maybe. Okay. So, I won't, but I'm just saying I would, I probably should do it. Um, okay. So now, Paro goes. Let's learn, let's learn about the, let's learn about the, this, this crazy place. Let's be able to appreciate the, the, you know, the Passover this year, like we've never appreciated before. So now, Paro goes, Paro, when, when Moses comes over to Paro and says, hey, listen, uh, you know, God is not really happy the way that you're treating the Jews. God wants you to release the Jews. And what does Paro respond? He says, who is God that I should listen to? Paro, Paro did. Paro denied God. Paro denied that there is an existence of God. Now, when Paro denied the existence of God, that means Paro denied everything about God. Now, one thing that we know about God is that the world was created with ten sayings. This is the Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, the fifth chapter of the first Mishnah. It says that the world was created with ten sayings. What does that mean with ten sayings? A lot of people speak about it. No one actually knows what they're talking about. But it's very simple. There are nine times, you look at the first chapter of Bereshit, of Genesis, there are nine times where God says, Vayomar. And God said, Vayihiol, and let there be light. So God said, and let there be light. That's nine times. The tenth time is referring to Bereshit, Bara Elohim, is also considered as God's sayings. Meaning, that the world was created by God's sayings, ten things. Because God said ten things, the world was created. So now, the, and the Mishnah over there brings down why ten sayings, to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked for ten times. Think of it this concept. If it, if it, if it takes you something to build one day, and it takes you something to build ten days, what hurts more when it gets destroyed? One day or ten days? Obviously something that costs you ten days. So think about that idea, uh, vis-a-vis, you know, like, uh, retribution or payment for the righteous and the wicked and how they react to God's commandments. But in any case, the, king of Egypt, the Paro, right? He goes and he denies God. What did he deny with God? He denied God, meaning that he denied that God created the world with ten sayings. So measure for measure, he is going to get punished with how many plagues? With ten plagues. Ten sayings, ten plagues. And each saying, which we're going to go through it, Kabbalistically, each saying corresponds to one of the plagues that that Paro, uh, that Paro denied. But it goes even further than that. There are... Anybody here is going for accounting? No, right? everyone here is going for therapy. Okay, so um, if I speak to men, everybody's an accountant. Uh, the let's do simple math. There, there's a bunch. There's there's a bunch of different rabbis that say different amount of plagues happen. So let's start with let's go. This is uh, the Svasamis does this calculation. Rabbi Akiva says that there are 300 plagues. So someone do a running math. It's very simple. You don't have to take out your calculator. Just use your Jewish brain. 300, 300 plagues. That's what Rabbi Akiva says. Rabbi Eliezer says it was 240. 300 plus 240. Anybody got it so far? 540, excellent. Okay. Rav Yosef Aglili says it was 60. 540 plus 60? 600, very good. Rav Yehuda gives three simanim. Ditzach adash be'achav. That's three. So we said 600. 600 plus three, we're up to? 603, very good. Okay, feeding it to you. Then we know the common understanding that there's 10 plagues. So they have 603 plus 10 is how much? 613. Now, Hmm, what is 613? Like, where do I know that number from? What's 613? There's 613 commandments, 613 mitzvahs. Now, don't you think there's maybe a connection going on over here? There, There is... 
different opinions to how many makot there were? Yeah. The Sfatemis goes and says, and he, and he, okay, I said yes too fast. I ha- there's a lot to speak about that. I'm not going to speak about that today. I definitely want to have time to it. But let's speak about what the Sfatemis says that there is, there is, let's just use your interpretation of it. There's different interpretation of it. You add all of them together, you get it, you get it up to the number of exactly 613. Now what is it, 600, 613 commandments, 613 makot, what's going on over here? There are 10 sayings, there's 10, there's 10 makot, there is a huge connection going on over here, which Bezat Hashem will try to uncover today. The Orgadaliyahu goes and explains like this, and he says that, why did God make the world in 10 sayings? God, what God did is that every time he made another saying, he, he hid himself, he cloaked himself in nature. Which means is that originally God created the world, it was very obvious to see that God created the world. But then God said another saying, and every saying God cloaked himself with another uh, uh, hidden cloak, I guess you could call it, in, in nature, which, was, which means it was more difficult to be able to see God through the natural world because of the ten sayings. What did the ten makot do? The ten makot, one by one, revealed God, one, you know, took off those hidden cloaks. And how did they correspond? So, if you're putting on ten coats, the, the last coat that you put on corresponds to the first coat that you take off. Now, I know that sounds very simple. The last coat that you put on is the first coat that you take off, right? Okay, so... <laughs> The first makkah that God did corresponds the tenth covering that God made Himself. Does that make sense? Are you guys with me so far? Okay, good. The ninth makkah is the second, second one. Very good. Okay, so that's why what the ninth makkah was what was darkness. What was the second saying? Oh, let there be light. What did God say in the beginning? Let there be light. Ah, now corresponding to that is going to be darkness. The tenth makkah, for example, was makat bochorot, was the, the the plague of the death of the firstborn. The makat, this corresponds to the first saying, which was he said was bereshit para Elohim, is also considered as a saying. The first, uh, you know, words of the of the Torah is a saying of God as well. Now that is why bereshit para Elohim, That's why makat bochorot. We know the the tenth plague was only done by God. It says, you know, what it says up there, it says, Only God did the tenth makkah b'chot. We're going to get a little bit deep, and then we're going to get a little bit light. So stay with me in the deep part. The Only God did the makkah b'chot. Why only God did the makkah b'chot? Because as God removed every cloak, everything, you realize that there's only God. There's only God in the world, and there's nothing else. That's why the final makkah corresponds to God fully revealing Himself. Now that God fully revealed Himself, only God is able to do the final makkah, because at the end of the day, it's all God. This is why, and this is actually the Chidush Arim goes on and explains it like this. He says you have the ten makot corresponding to the ten, uh, to the ten sayings, the ten mamot. This leads to the ten commandments. And that's why finally when God removed all the cloaks, all the hidden, then what is the first commandment? Now that you revealed, now that you could see that I am God, that's why it starts off. Anoch Yashem Elokecha. I am the Lord your God. That's what it is able to start. Whoever appreciated that should be dancing inside. Um, uh, but this is this, what I just said was like crazy. I mean, I just said what I just repeated. Well, is is crazy? Yeah. So now this, we start off with six hundred thirteen. There were six hundred thirteen makot corresponding to the six hundred thirty commandments, meaning that the, there is some essence, being, power that wants to take us away from the 613 commandment. Each one, there's 613 different ones. And God created a makkah corresponding that. God had a created, you know, something that to just, you know, sort of to prepare us. When we look at the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, when we look at the ten plagues, we think of it as a punishment for the Egyptians. It wasn't only a punishment for the Egyptians. It was also an education for the Egyptians and for the Jewish people. It helped the Jewish, and in fact, you know, you know, Pichazal, they tell us that it also, the makot healed the Jewish people. It brought us to understanding of God that we didn't have before. 
the purpose of the, the makot, besides the fact that we mentioned that is to punish the Egyptians, is also to educate the Egyptians themselves. And that's why the Torah repeats again and again in Exodus, in the story of Yitzhak and Simon, Leman that you should know ki ani Hashem You should know that I am God. Generally, you have to believe, you have to do that. When the Jews and the Egyptians, after this whole scenario, this whole plague situation went through, they knew that God existed. There was a clear understanding that God existed. Now the Malbim, this is beautiful, this is crazy. The Malbim goes and categorizes the ten plagues, you know, into, into, into categories. We know the Tzach Adash Bechav. Whoever doesn't know what I just said, that's an acronym for the ten plagues. So Dam Tzodeakinim spells out, you take the first letter, it's the Tzach. It's Dalet Tzadik and spell And each one spells out, it's an acronym for, for the, the ten plagues. But more than that, more than it's an acronym, it actually separates the plagues. There is plagues one through three. Then you have four, five, six. Then you have seven, eight, nine. Ten is its own category. There are three sets of plagues, and the tenth one is in its own category. Says the Malbim, what are the three sets of plagues? The first three sets of plagues, which is three times three is nine, the first nine plagues is there to prove that God exists. The tenth one is there just to get the Jews out of Egypt. That's the first three plagues. So we're going to go through it, uh, you know, one by one, and how each one proves one. The Ramban, Nachmanides, goes and on Exodus chapter 31, verse 16, says that there are many types of heretics. There are many types of people that don't believe in God. There's levels of different beliefs and understanding of what God is. So you have category number one, that God never created the world. You can even say God never existed. One of those atheistic type of people. Right? God didn't exist. That's category number one. Category number two, they believe that God ex- existed and God created the world, but they don't believe in divine providence, meaning that they don't believe that God intervenes in the world. God had created the world, made the world run on itself, and then he steps back. That's category number two. Category number three is that God, he may have created the world. He may have actually intervened in the world, but he doesn't have the power to overrule what he already implemented, meaning that he doesn't have the power over nature. That's the three, that's the three categories that the Ramban goes and brings it down. Now, what did the miracles of Egypt do? The miracles of Egypt went and answered all these questions. It answered for the heretics in those times and the heretics in the future. Right? God is not going to reveal himself in, you know, in all splendor because one guy says, I don't believe in God. But, well, then I guess I have to do an Yitziat Mitzrayim on you, right? Ten plagues on your neighbor, you know, or your tax collector, or whatever it is, right? Your driver instructor, whatever you hate. Uh, you know, like, people, you know, you have to realize that this is emphasized so much in Judaism because this is the foundation of understanding what, that God exists. That's why we constantly repeat it every single day. We're constantly reminding, We're constantly repeating these things because this is the foundation of everything. And if you're going, as like blood, you know, like this blood, there's frogs and kinet, and you're just having, you know, you're, you get those little puppets, you know, if you want to spend $400, right? And you get those little puppets and you're going and you're acting out. That's amazing, that's great, but do you know what you're acting out? Do you know what's going on over here? There's so much hidden stuff going on in each plague that we really have to uncover it in order to understand it. So the problem goes, and explains like this. The first three plagues, these demonstrate the existence of God. These are for people that, who don't believe that God exists. This shows that God exists. And we're going to go and explain it. The, there's actually, um, the, the verbiage in the Torah actually proves this. In uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, it says, It says, with this you should know that I am God. Meaning, with these first three plagues, you will know that I exist. 
Then the second three plagues, we're just doing a brief overview. The second three, the second three plagues, so which means plagues number four, five, and six, this shows that God not only exists, but he has the power and the authority over the world. How do we know this? That when Moshe Rabbeinu goes and tells Parol that the, the plagues are coming, what does he say? He doesn't say that it's coming today. It says Machar. The plagues are coming tomorrow. What do you mean coming tomorrow? To show you that everything is coming exactly as God says it, that it's going to come. Not that, oh, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu was able to predict the future and knew that there was some sort of something going on today. He knew exactly when it's coming because it shows that God actually has the authority and the power over the world. How do we see this in the verses in the Torah? In Exodus chapter 8 verse 18, it says, That you should know, says, says God, that I am the God in the midst of the earth, says the Shla, what's the midst of the earth? Meaning that God is active in the laws of nature. God is controlling, is, is, is active in the laws of nature. Then you go to the third set. The third set, that this is plague 7, 8, and 9, this shows that God's power is absolute, above the laws of nature. And you, when you look at the plagues, you look at hail, for example, fire and water, opposite of nature. Darkness, for example. What's darkness? Darkness, you have the ability, you know, like when it's dark, it's dark. But this darkness was different. You aren't able to move in it. Like God actually manipulated nature to the extent that shows that God had the power over nature. And this is what we see in the Pasuk in Exodus chapter 9 verse 14. Teda, you should know ki en kamoni There is none like me like all the land. Meaning that there's no other God or any other powers like me in all the land. So what we did was we broke up the three, the three, pla- the, the, the plagues into three sets. The first three prove that God exists. The second, the, the following, the second set of three, so four, five, and six, this proof that God's authority, and the final three, minus the, you know, the, the tenth plague, this shows that God's power over, over the land. Now we can understand a different concept. Almost finished the hard stuff. And then we're gonna get to the fun stuff. The, we know that the way the work does is this. Moshe Rabbeinu went, and it went like this. He, there were three sets of plagues. For the first two, he warned them. So for example, plagues one and two, warning. Plagues three, no warning. Four and five, warning. Six, no warning. Seven and eight, warning. You know, and so on and so, and so, on and so forth. The first two, warning. The second two, the, the last one, not. The first two, warning. Why not? Because after you warn somebody twice and they're not going to listen, you don't have to warn them again. That's what, you know, but, so the question is, so Moshe Abin already warned them twice. Why is he warning them again, you know, at plague number, uh, plague number four? The answer is because Plague number one, you know, first set of plagues was teaching one thing, God is existent. Okay, so we're going to warn you twice. Now you didn't get it, I'm not going to warn you a third time. Plague number four, plague number four all of a sudden, okay, now we're learning a new lesson. Now we're learning God's authority. Oh, we're learning a new lesson, you need to get two more warnings. Now you got it. You didn't get it, the six, you know, the seven, the six one, what was that, four, five, and six. The six one, you're not going to get any warning. Seven and eight, you get a warning. But, you know, nine, you're not going to get a warning. Why? Because every single set is a different lesson. It's a different lesson for God and for the Jewish people. Okay. So now, the way that we understand this is, a king wants, a king once sent a servant out. And he sent the servant out to get him fish. The servant comes and he brings a fish. It gets cooked. The king, you know, smells it, tastes it. It's a rotten fish. The king says, are you kidding me? You brought me a rotten fish? He calls a servant in who purchased it. And he says, you have a choice. You have three options to choose from for your punishment. You're going to get punished. Number one, you eat the fish. Number two, you get a hundred lashes. Number three, you have to pay a hundred gold coins. So the slave is thinking, he says, you know what? Lashes, let me eat the fish. He says, give me the fish. They bring him this big fish. 
he takes one whiff, he almost passes out. It's like, this is like a very, he's like, I don't know how I bought this fish. Have you ever smelled fish? Have you ever smelled a rotten fish? Probably not. But fish itself has an odor. Let's just leave it at that. Imagine what a rotting fish smells like. So he takes the smell, he's like, you know, he's like, you know, his gag reflex is like kicking in, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to go through it. And he goes and he starts plowing through it. He's, clo- he's like chugging it down, just like your mother made you eat your vitamins. You know, like chugging everything down. Like he gets halfway through and he feels like he's going to pass out. He's like, you know what, I can't. You know, like he's like, I'm sorry. You know, I was like, you know what, like my dear king, can I, can I switch? He's like, what do you want to take of that? You know, as next. He says, give me the hundred lashes instead. So the king says, fine. You know, get the hundred lashes, call the lashes guy. He's like, got lashes guy. Right? And the lashes guy comes in and does his stretching. And he starts lashing the guy. You know, one, two, three. He gets to 55. And the guy's like, I can't go on anymore. It kills me so much. He says, you know what, my dear king, do you mind if I do one last switch? And the king says, yeah, you know, you want to pay? You pay the fine. The guy says, fine. He pays He pays 100 gold coins. Now, if this guy would have been smart, he would have just started right away. And he would have just paid the 100 gold coins. Why did he have to eat the fish? And then go through the lashes. And then go through that. That's what Paro went through. Had Paro been smart, he would just let the Jews go. Just figure it out that God is going to get his way. Just let it go to him. But what? No, he didn't. He's like, okay, no, no, he's going to be stubborn. So what happened? First, he ate the fish. How did he eat the fish? His land was contaminated with bloods, blood, frogs, and lice. That's how his land became contaminated. Then he decided, you know what? Okay, fine, fine. Then he became, then he got flogged. He got, he, he got the malcot. He got hit. That was with beasts, with the plague, and with boils. And finally, he figured out, like the guy, he says, you know what, let me just pay it off. Let me just pay the thing. He got, he lost, this is where Paolo lost all his property. The last four plagues were the hail, he lost all the property, destroyed. The locusts ate everything. The, the, the plague of darkness where the Jews were able to find out all the hidden, you know, all the hidden, uh, you know, secrets of, uh, uh, the treasures of the, of the Egyptians. And finally, he actually lost, uh, you know, his firstborn. And then he lost his, his, uh, his, his, uh, his slaves, the Jewish slaves. We see from here a very, very important lesson. Don't run away from God. Because at the end of the day, God is going to get what God wants. So many times in life, and this is a lesson for each and every single one of us, God sends us lessons. God sends us reminders. God sends us these like spurts of lightning. They're like, hey, maybe don't do this. Maybe do something else. God sends us this, this like lightning. You know, I get... Every, every now and again, I get, you know, let's say people that ask me about evil eye. And like, you know... How do I get rid of evil eye? You know, I was dealing with, you know, a few this week, you know, just, you know, just, and, and I usually tell everybody the same thing. I'm like, what, if, you know, why are you worried so much about evil eye? Are you keeping Shabbat? Are you keeping kosher? Are you doing, first, if God is sending you punishments, there's a reason for it. Maybe you should fix the way that you're doing. Maybe you should change your actions. No, the first thing we want to do is we want to change our mezuzot and we want to go on the easy stuff, evil eye. Let's pay some Kabbalist to sprinkle some magic water on me and I'll be healed so I can continue going and living my life. No, maybe you should stop for a second. If God is sending you sign, you cannot say, okay, like I'm not going to listen to it. The signs are just going to get louder and clearer to you. What you want to say is like, God, I get the point. I don't need the signs anymore. Don't be like Parol who will be like, well, you know what, maybe I could do this. You're going to be like the guy who says, you know what, let me eat the fish. And then, all right, fine, eat the fish. And then you're going to be like the guy that says, you know what, all right, let me get the hits. And then you're going to be the guy that just pay the fine immediately. Just say, okay, God, listen, I know what I need to do. Let me just skip to the end. Let's avoid all troubles. This is what, this is a, you know, this reminds me of a, you know, I'm going to botch up the story, but uh, there, was a, there was a guy who was working on his belief in God. And he was on a boat. And the boat capsized and it sank. And he was holding on to like this little raft. 
And he's like, God, please, I says, I trust only in you. Please go and please help me. An hour goes by, and there's a rescue boat that comes by. And the rescue boat goes, and they see them. They're like, you know, you're rescued, come on. And the guy says, listen, I'm dealing with God right now. God is going to send me somebody. I don't need you. I'm dealing with God. God is going to take care of me. The guy says, you don't want to come? He says, I'm not coming to you. I'm trust fully in God. And the guy says, you know, you're crazy. Like, like, and the guy refused to go on the, on, the, on, the, on the lifeboat. So the boat continued going. And he says, God, I have full faith in you. I know that, I'm, you know, that you're going to save me. Another hour goes by. A helicopter goes by. Sees the guy floating. Falls down in a rope. He looks up and, he, you know, the loudspeaker, the guy in the loudspeaker goes, you know, get on the rope, we'll save you. He says, no, God is going to save me. I am waiting for God. Finally, the guy gives up, drives away, flies away. And then he dies of starvation and he goes up to heaven. And he gets up to heaven and he says, God, he says, I trusted in you. How did you let me down? And God said, I sent you two people. Two people, right? I sent you two people. This will be better. I sent you two people. He says, why didn't you go and you? They're like, no, I was waiting for God. Like there are many times that we, we look for God and God is there, but we choose not to see it. Don't be like Paolo who doesn't see God. Be like somebody who's able to say, you know what? You're able to, there's a very fine line where you could see God in everything in your life and you could see God nothing in your life. You have to know which side of the equation that you lie on. God is constantly going to be there for you. But the question is, are you going to notice it or are you going to not? So, that is one lesson that we, uh, that we learned from the Ben Chai goes on and he says, says, why do we have ten plagues? Why couldn't it be one plague? Could have been one plague. God could have made the plague of blood just last forever. Eventually would have destroyed the Egyptians. Why did it have to be ten plagues? So the Ben Chai goes and says that, uh, imagine there's two guys walking down two different paths. One guy goes and he finds ten grand in one shot. And he's ecstatic. He loves it. He's so happy. Thank God. Everything is amazing. There's another guy walking another path. He finds a thousand dollars ten times. Which guy is happier? The second guy. Why is the second guy happier? They both came to the same conclusion. The second guy came. He th- he had that happiness ten times. So the reason why God made ten plagues, the sport of one plague, is well, at one point it was a it was a measure for measure, but at the second point it was a punishment appreciation also for the Jewish people to realize who God is, and also for the Egyptians, who God is, who you're dealing with, you know, when, you, when you're dealing with God. Do we have time for this? Maybe we'll have time for this afterwards. Okay. The, there's a midrash, there's a, there's a, a beautiful midrash, and says, how did God go and, and make these plagues? We think these plagues, is, this, there's nothing random about these plagues. Everything is so meticulous, so perfect, it's so beautiful. But there's a Midrash that goes and says that the order of the plagues are very similar to the pattern of, let's say a king goes and wants to capture a certain rebellious uh, city, country, whatever, you know, estate. So what, are the, what, what is the process that, that, that a king want, wants to go and, and overcome a, let's say, a walled city that, is, that they're trying to take? How, what's the process that they go? So number one, first, what he does is the king sends his troops and they lay siege on the entire land. They go, they send, they put the troops all around. No one comes in, no one comes out. And what they will usually try to do if the water source is from outside, they block the water source. Because if they block the supply of water, eventually the people are going to, you know, dry out and then they're going to have to uh, come out. If that doesn't work, the king brings special battalions. So these are like, you know, like the, 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 the concept of having people or animals come out with like crazy cries, like screams, to frighten the people inside to realize, you know, that sometimes the, ske- the, the screams are more scarier than the actual uh, um, war itself. 
I don't know if you ever, you know, learned about ancient war, but one, it used to be sword-to-sword battle, uh, sword-to-sword combat. And the way that it used to go is when people would go and fight, they would scream on top of their lungs. They would, why would they scream on top of their lungs? Because you're trying to scare the enemy. It's a psychological warfare tactic that if you scare the enemy, then they're going to be off guard. And because they're going to be off guard, you're going to be able to go and, you know, chop them up, I guess, in the nicest way possible. The certain nursing home facilities, if let's say a patient is in bed, and let's say the patient is a, a patient that, that may fall off the bed or may ha- be a fall risk, meaning that the patient's not able to walk, they do something, they put an alarm on the bed. Does anybody know what I'm talking about over here? They have, a, they have a, right, so they have a, a sort of a weight, you know, sensor, sensor on the bed. Then when the second the patient gets off the bed, the alarm goes off. Now when the alarm goes off, so hopefully if you have a competent staff, the staff runs up, says, no, 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 you got to stay back in bed. It's sort of a way of keeping, making sure that the patient's still in bed. What's the benefit of having this? And I'm not going to go through the whole, you know, the, the whole topic of it. It's very interesting. But at the end of the day, they came to the conclusion that it's not beneficial to have that, 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 that alarm. Why not? Let's say you have a patient. That this patient is not 100% cognitively you know, there. So they get off their bed and they hear this loud noise. What is the first thing that they do? They lose their balance and they're going to fall because they hear this loud noise. So like this is counterproductive on having an alarm and an actually CMS, you know, the, the, you know, actually came out that it's not beneficial to have alarm in these types of facilities. So, so slowly, you know, nursing facilities are, are moving away with going away with these types of, uh, um, with, with these types of bed alarms. But what's the concept that when you have a loud noise, you get shocked. And when you get shocked, and even, you know, like I remember when I was younger, so, you know, uh, you know, I don't know if anybody over here, you have house alarms. And sometimes the house alarms, you know, go off for no reason. When you hear a house alarm, I, you know, so in my house growing up, the house, the alarm was right near my bed. So like my room. So my room was right there. So it was so loud. Like the second that you hear alarm, you wake up and then you freeze. You know, like, I don't know what to do. You know, I just three. What am I supposed to do? You know, like you don't know what. It's so much noise. The, the concept of of alarm is is a scaring a scaring sound. That's what they used to do. They used to bring they used to bring like like noise. Noise was a very important tactic in warfare because if you have noise, it scares the people. They shock them, and then you're able to take advantage of that shock. So that was that's the second step of what uh, a. Um, of what an army does, try to go and and besiege a a uh, um, a, a country. No, number three, if they persist, then then they go with archers and they shoot clouds of arrows into the city. And if it doesn't work, they bring these types of mercenaries that go and they destroy the livestock, destroy the food source. If that still doesn't go, they use some sort of chemical warfare that they're able to destroy the remaining livestock in the plague. If that still doesn't work, then they throw the catapult boulders into the city. Like huge rocks they throw into the city. When they throw into the city, hopefully that will scare the people to come out. If that still doesn't work, they bring battering rams. Are you guys familiar with what battering rams is? Okay. Battering you know, guys know, it's like this huge tower where they have this like, they try to basically knock down a, a wall. So it's like, imagine you take this, this tree and you just shave off everything. Yeah, it's like a, exactly. It's like a wrecking ball, and you just go up and you and you try to. Besides that, it's a tower, so they're able to shoot arrows, whatever. It's you know, it's, it's ancient warfare uh, tactics. So, if that still doesn't work, they go and they send in troops, and they go and they arrest the people, the rebels that are that are going and they're refraining from from capturing the city. And these prisoners, where they're held, they're held in a dark dungeon. 
And finally, if, the, if there's still pockets of resistance, what they do is they execute the leaders. That's what they do. So this is how exactly how God went the ten plagues. First, the siege began. How the siege began? After the Makkah of Dam, blood. The blood came, and that's what the... Oh, do we even build to get, get the blood? The, the first, you know, it went and it was... They, they, God took out the water. That's through the changing the Makkah of Dam. Afterwards, they brought a lot of noise. What was the noise? The frogs. The frogs was the, was the, was the noise of it. If, since there was still resistance, God sent lice. Lice are like, like, uh, they penetrated the Egyptians' bodies like, like arrows are penetrating the, you know, the body. That still didn't work, so God sent wild beasts, arob, and pestilence, devil, to injure the Egyptians and also to kill their animals. After that, God went and God attacked the bodies of the Egyptians with actual blisters and hailstones, which also attacked the, the Egyptians and their, their property. Following that, he sent locusts, Albet, which overwhelmed and subjugated the entire land. Then he trapped them in darkness and finally killed his firstborn. The same way that a king takes over a country, God went and God took over, uh, God took over Egypt. The, Abal Banel goes and brings down a, uh, a verse in, in Proverbs, in Mishlev, chapter 24, verse 17. It says, Beneful Obecha, when your, when your enemies fall, Altismach, don't be happy when your enemies fall. Now why should he be happy when the enemies fall? Now, so it explains about it now. The Egyptians deserve the punishment. They were very, very mean, rude, disgusting, ugly, whatever the terminology you want to use it, people. They were very bad to the Jewish people. But at the same point in time, the Egyptians suffered a lot by the plagues. It's human nature to, you know, like, okay, they hurt you, but it's still, you know, like, as a Jew, Jew is supposed to be very compassionate. That is why when we mention the plagues, excuse me, on, on uh, the southern night, what we do is we spill, or we use a finger, depending on how, what the customer use, of the, of, you know, from the wine. Why do we spill from the wine? Wine is symbolizing happiness. Why are we spilling? Because at one point, you know, we're sort of satisfied that the Egyptians went through what they went through. But the second point, they're still human beings. And if they're human beings, they went through something, even though they deserved it, they went, it's still, they're human beings and they went through terrible suffering. Because of that, we still, we spill a little bit of the wine to show that we're, you know, it's, it's painful for us even, even our enemies, we shouldn't be happy that they went through that. The, um, Rabbi Saul Spira goes, uh, Rabbi Saul Spira, you know, lived through the Holocaust. And when he came out of the Holocaust, he, uh, he went to America and he was asked to speak in the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And he had a tremendous crowd that came over to, you know, to hear his speech. And he spoke about the horrors of the Holocaust, what he went through and what the people went through, went through all the details of what was, uh, what was going on. And at the end of the speech, it wasn't a dry eye in the, you know, in the, in the audience. At the end of it, there was the, the president of Agudat uh, Yisrael over there, gave him a large envelope full of money. And Rabbi Shal Spiro at that point in time didn't have any money, and he actually needed the money. But he was from Europe, and he's like, what's this money for? Like, why are you giving me money? And he says, you know, the custom is in America that, you know, when someone comes and gives a speech, they give him, you know, they give him a amount of money, you know, give him a certain amount of money because of the, you know, the effort that they went through to prepare the speech, and they came. So they give them out the money. So Rabbi Shal Spiro said, listen, it says a lot, wow, that's an amazing and a, and a very right custom because, you know, the speakers do work very hard for their speeches. He says, I cannot take anything for this, uh, I cannot take anything for this, uh, for this, uh, for this speech. He says, why not? He says, because what did I speak about? I spoke about the suffering of the Jewish people. He says, how could I make money off the suffering of the Jewish people? And he goes and he quotes a Midrash. And the Midrash that, that he quotes is as follows. He says, during the plague of blood, the Egyptians went and they couldn't find any water, so they paid the Jewish people for water, which we'll speak about this option. And the, there's a machloket in saying, how did the Jews get wealthy? 
The one, there's, there's, uh, Rabbi Avin goes and says that the Jews got wealthy. How did they get wealthy? They got wealthy because from the money that they went and they sold water. Right? You ever think about it? Who would sell water? Like, why would, here's bottle free stuff that you could get from your sink. Who are the first person, the first per- people that went and sold something that's free? Is the Jewish people. Right? <laughs> so, it's like, imagine that. The first, imagine the first person that bottled water. Be like, hey, you want to buy some free stuff that you get on your sink? Be like, no, I'll just get in the sink. And that's a billion dollar, you know, you know, industry right now, right? So the Jews started it as usual. So the, the he goes and says and says that one 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 rabbi says that, that where did the Jews get the money when they left Egypt? They got it from selling water. And says Rabbi Yossi says no, he disagrees. That's not where they got the money. Where they came money? They became money when the Egyptians gave them their riches when they left Egypt. Says Rabbi Yisrael Spira, says, why did the, why did the Egyptians, why, why did Rabbi Yossi have a problem? Let him just say, yeah, the Jews got money. Why is there an argument? They got money from both. Why is it such a problem? He says, no, no, no. The Jews didn't get money from selling water. They got the money from the Egyptians when they left Egypt. What's the big deal? Let it be both. What's, why is it such an argument? Says Rabbi Yisrael Spira, says, because the, <clears throat> the Jewish trait is they don't gain from someone else's suffering. Somebody else is suffering, the Egyptians are suffering, the Jewish people don't gain. That is what Rabbi Yossi, that, that, that is how you know, Rabbi Yossi goes and, and you know, his concept is. He says, a Jew does not gain from somebody else's suffering. So, says, says Rabbi Yossi, he says, how could I, you give me money for something, I'm speaking about the Jewish people, the suffering that they had. He says, for that, I can't take any money from it. So we see over here, you know, when we're going through the ten plagues, we're appreciating it, but at the same point in time, God's creation was suffering. And there's another, there's another short story, the Meshkiach of Slabatka, about Ram Gordinsky. He, when he felt, he would live during the Holocaust. He fell ill during the time of the Nazi, the Nazi occupation. And the Nazis, they, uh, they had a, you know, they had no use for sick people. They had no use for healthy people either. But I'm saying, well, they had definitely no use for sick people. So he told the doctors, they told the doctors, do not, don't do anything for them. Just let them be. So, when, when Rabbi Avram went and he had his, his final encounter with the students, he was crying. And his last, his last speech to the students, he says, by the way, you should know that I'm not crying because I'm going to die or because of the suffering that I have. It says, the same way that you bless God on the good, you should bless God on the bad. That's the way they're supposed to do it. He says, I have no problem with that. I can bless God on the good. He says, but what am I crying for? He says, I'm crying for the Nazis. He says, why am I crying for the Nazis? He says, the Nazis... They are created They are created in the image of God, which means they represent something. But they're acting so subhuman that they're destroying their tzelamelokim. They're destroying their image in the God of they created. This is for that I'm crying. So for the fact that they're so subhuman, they're 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 acting in, a, in in such an animalistic you know feature that they destroy their human nature in them. And this is for that for that that is the reason that I'm crying. This is why we go. And every time we, we say and we, we say one of the makat, we spill a little of wine because it hurts us. At the end of the day, yes, you know the Egyptians got what they deserved. But at the end of the day, they are human beings, and, and it's difficult. So we spill a little bit of wine. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.